We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B-E to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights, strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com slash B. That's IXL.com slash B. Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Frederick Lane. He is an author, attorney, educational consultant, and lecturer based in Brooklyn, New York. He's the co-founder of the Center for Cyber Ethics and is a nationally recognized expert in the areas of cyber safety, digital misconduct, personal privacy, and other topics at the intersection of law, technology, and society. He has appeared on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, the BBC, and MSNBC. He's written 10 books, including most recently Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyber Ethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Mom and Dads. He's currently working on his newest book, The Rise of the Digital Mob, All of his books are available on Amazon.com or through his websites, FrederickLane.com and Cybertraps.com. With Jethro Jones, the transformative principal, Lane hosts the Cybertraps podcast. He is also the publisher of the Cybertraps newsletter. So welcome, Fred. Thank you very much, Tanya. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Like we were just talking about before we started recording, this is an area where I don't have a lot of background and expertise. So this is going to be a really interesting conversation. And I'm sure that I'll learn a lot. Hopefully our rebel educators will as well. But let's start with you and your background. How did you become interested in the internet and safety and privacy? Well, it's been an interesting career path, to put it mildly. Um, Like a lot of people, there's been some twists and turns. But the simplest answer to your question is that I began working with computing devices when I was in fourth grade. And just to really put a date on that, that takes us back to 1972. They had a computer camp at the high school in the town that I lived in. And I absolutely loved it and began to really start paying a little bit more attention. 
to that particular topic. What ended up happening was that I kept up with computers as I went through college and then went to law school. And when I got done with that, it seemed like a natural thing to combine the two. So I began doing some research on the impact of technology on different legal topics. Eventually, I started doing computer consulting for law firms instead of practicing, which was much nicer. And I got the idea for my first book in the late 1990s when the Communication Decency Act was passed by Congress. And they, of course, were petrified by the stuff that was going online in the mid-1990s. And the thing was that the law that they passed, the Communications Decency Act, was utterly unconstitutional on its face. So I really began diving into what the internet was doing, why it was causing this reaction in Congress and so forth. And that led me to write my first book, Obscene Profits, about the rise of the online adult industry. And from there, I've just continued to look at different aspects of technology and society. So workplace privacy, uh, decency in America and various media, and then eventually the impact that all of these devices are having on our children and on the schools. So in 2011, I published Cybertraps for the Young, which was designed to help parents understand the risks that they were exposing their children to. And of course, that's 12 years ago now. The risks are just dramatically increased over that period of time. And unfortunately, one of the things I discovered when I did Cybertraps for the Young was that many of the dangers that kids were stumbling into also involved teachers in one way or another. Sometimes it was kids trying to do things to teachers like create fake online accounts or be harassing in other ways. And then unfortunately, as we're all aware, sometimes it was because educators were using these devices and communication channels to reach out to children. And so that's where cyber traps for educators came from. I published that. I think the first one was in 2013 or so. And the goal has been ever since to go out to school districts and to individual schools and talk to teachers about some of these risks and help them avoid them as much as possible. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with ed tech? Tools that assume every student learns the same way at the same pace. I need my technology to do more for me. That's why it's so important for me to know that IXL provides true personalized learning across the entire pre-K-12 curriculum and that it's proven benefit to all student populations, including English learners and students in special education programs. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results, combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com B for a demo. That's IXL.com B E. So you were in computer camp. I'm going back to the beginning of what you started with here. You were in computer camp in 1972. Did I hear that right? You did, in fact, hear that right. My school got our first computers when I was in fifth grade. And like I was a part of our very first ever computer programming class, which was in 1990. And so like this is 20 years later than when you're doing computer camp. I have absolutely no explanation 
for how a <laughs> lower middle class high school in southeastern Massachusetts got its hands on one of the digital equipment core mid-size computers. I do not know how it happened. I'd love to know the story. But somehow this wound up on the second floor of the high school. And this will really date me to your audience. It came with the peripherals of card readers and paper spool to read paper tapes that we generated by typing into consoles. You couldn't actually interact directly with the computer because there mm -hmm. were no monitors or screens to do that. Everything had to be through card readers or punch tapes that then got turned into commands for the computer. It was really just archaic. So, you know, it's good to have that background. When I go out and I lecture to classes, as I was doing yesterday, I can always get a laugh out of the kids by trying to help them understand yeah, these are kids who haven't even seen a rotary phone, let alone a card reader for a computer. So it gets to be very interesting, although I feel myself aging as I do it. So there you go. Well, I'm picturing scene from Hidden Figures when they get their first computers at NASA and they bring in yep. the women who were the computers because that was a job title before we had a device called computers. So they bring in the women who were computers to check the device computers work. And they're going through the tapes and she's learned how to do it so that she could help with making sure that it was accurate. Your visual is spot on. We had a much, much, much smaller version of what NASA bought. But still, mm -hmm. that is exactly the setup. You mentioned one of your first books or your earlier work was around the online adult industry and what was happening yeah. there. And you went from the adult industry to education. I find that interesting. Like My background was in beer. I sold beer for a decade before going into education. Awesome. And so it's one of those, those things yeah. that people don't see that correlation or how that happens. But now you're doing development for schools. Feel free to talk more about the adult industry if you'd like. But I'd love to hear about you know, your professional development for schools. And you mentioned being in a school and some of the things you're talking with with students now. Sure. And actually, you know, I can tile all this up into a nice little bow for you, Tanya, because I did, in fact, get into that research because that's what drove Congress to do the Communications Decency Act. And, and I felt like it was important for people to understand what was going on. Ironically, now, one of the things when I go out and I do professional development for educators is basically helping them understand what the professional risks are of setting up an OnlyFans account as a way of making some extra money on the side. So my world comes together in a circle, which is, I guess, the good thing. But that is merely one aspect, obviously, of the work that I do. I'm in the process, along with the rise of the digital mob, of also updating Cybertraps for Educators to what I hope will be version 3.0 in time for an October conference that I'm going to. I believe, where is that one? That one's up in Providence, Rhode Island, if I recall correctly. It's actually for teacher licensing professionals, so investigators, folks who hand out sanctions for misconduct and so forth. So they're really into the topics I study. But right now, and I don't expect it to be the end, I've already got 35 different chapters of different cyber traps that educators need to be aware of. Everything from distracted walking and driving when they're responsible for kids to the risks of having a risque, shall we say, side hustle to make some extra money. I've seen everything from people writing fantasy novels, you know, kind of erotic novels to 
artwork. Maybe they've got a blog. Now you get into the OnlyFans stuff. So there's a lot of different activity out there. And one of the things I think that educators lose sight of sometimes is the fact that teenagers tend to be the best digital investigators on the planet. So if they have a teacher in front of them, they're naturally curious about that teacher. They are relentless in their search for information. So helping educators really appreciate how easily information spreads online. Now, of course, when I say now, I mean over the last decade in particular, we've seen obviously the polarization in our country and a lot of educators get into trouble when they put unfiltered thoughts, shall we say, out into the universe whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. So there are all of these different things that I think we tend to rush into because of the nature of technology. It encourages us to act without thinking. The programs are literally designed to be addictive and to keep us engaged and online. And so part of my job when I go out and do professional development for school districts and so forth is giving people the opportunity to reflect on what they do, how they use technology, what the potential implications might be. I talk a lot with administrators about acceptable use policies, what kinds of education and colleague discussion should be occurring around behavior. Oftentimes, you know, you run into a situation where it's usually the staff, the, the people working in a building who are aware of a potential problem with a colleague before administration is. And so it's a chance to review, you know, what the responsibilities are for mandatory reporting, what rises to the level of concern when there's some kind of interaction between a teacher and a student, so on and so forth. Yeah, that was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And that's like four chapters out of 35. So yeah, there's a ton of material. And The biggest challenge with this stuff is to wrangle it into some kind of usable form. And that's really the role that I think I play. Is there kind of an overarching theme or motto or something that threads through the book when you're talking about all of these different cyber traps and the things that you can fall into and ways that people can find out about your dirty business or whatever else you're doing on the side, right? Or find your unfiltered thoughts or all of these things. Like, So is there some sort of motto or thread that goes through that's kind of a be your best self online and in person that you're sharing with educators? I mean, the the kind of catchphrase, there's a couple. I mean, I'm in the process of uh, kind of trying to rewrite some of our better known aphorisms. So, you know, one of them that you would throw out to people is post unto others as you would have them post unto you, you know, really (laughs) observe the golden rule. And then another that I like to throw out and have people reflect upon is stop, drop and roll over. So, you know, stop what you're doing, particularly late at night with your devices, you know, roll over, put it down, just really give yourself permission and the opportunity to walk away from whatever impetus is driving you to respond in that second. And that's particularly true, obviously, with social media. It's a little bit harder, obviously, to come up with that kind of thing for educators who may be concerned that something they feel like they're doing on their private time might show up on social media or show up online in some way and embarrass them. And there's not a good answer for that. I think more than anything else, it's helping people think about how easily that happens. And then they can make a a more informed decision about whether or not they want to do that. 
They may work in a school district, which doesn't have a problem with them being a you know, model online, depending on what they're doing. Virtually every school district, of course, is going to have a problem if one of their teachers is doing something explicit or too risque. But those are the kinds of discussions that people should be having before they go online and try to do this stuff. More than anything else, I think at the end of the day, I'm trying to help teachers appreciate the fact that in our current digital era, it's almost impossible to keep those aspects of their life truly private. And, you know, that's very frustrating for people. It's not just teachers. It's harder and harder to carve out a zone of privacy that is actually meaningful. And that's actually one of the other books that I read a few years ago was called American Privacy, trying to help people understand where the right to privacy came from. And now, of course, with the recent decision in Dobbs, we're starting to see the zone of privacy shrinking, particularly for women of childbearing years. So all of this stuff, again, ties into together, and we need to look at what the role of social media is in this new environment. Well, there is a way to be private. You just stay offline. I have friends that aren't online. They don't have social media. They're not on LinkedIn. They're not. They're just not active at all online. And when I search these people's names, like you can't find anything except maybe like a 5K race result from 2005. And you're like, wow, she was fast in 2005. But I generally believe personally, like anything that I put online isn't private. If I think it's private, it's not private. Somebody can find it. Somebody can hack it. Like if I'm putting this thing into the world, it is not private. And I've chosen to live my life in that way that I understand that the things I buy on Amazon are not private. The things I comment on on Facebook, they're tracking me and that's how they're advertising to me. And sure, that's just part of, I feel like, the agreement that I make by living in a virtual world as well as the real world. Well, Tanya, I think that's spot on. And I guess my response, and this is where kind of doing the the work with educators can be very frustrating for them, is that, you know, if, if you say that to an educator, and there are many who follow that approach, they really have very minimal online presences, they will reduce 80 to 90% of the cyber traps that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that does pop up with annoying frequency is this concept that I basically lump into the chapter, cameras are everywhere. And if people know that they are educators, there's an increased likelihood that they will be photographed. And then, of course, one of the issues that we run into is that, particularly in high schools, I think the usage rate of smartphones is now somewhere in 93 94%, something like that. Sounds it's, right. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal. So, Even the most offline teacher in the world is standing in front of anywhere from 15 to 30 kids with a global publishing platform in their pocket. And so that's enormously frustrating for educators because they're saying to themselves, how do I get away from this? And that's when you start having a conversation with administrators about what are your device rules for the school? What kind of digital citizenship are we teaching kids as they grow so that they have some respect? or educators in some sense of the harm they can do. But this, I think, gets back to my fundamental point is that there's, even for the true digital recluse, we'll call them, the risks that I write about can still arise. So it's it's challenging, but it's a good point. You brought in really beautifully to my next question, which was about digital citizenship. And we've talked a lot about like educators and 
how they can be good digital citizens and good digital mentors, but how are we teaching our students and our kids and our youth? How as parents and educators, can we help them to be responsible digital citizens? Well, this is, if you don't mind my throwing the plug out, this is where raising cyberethical kids is squarely on point because the goal with that particular book was to give parents some ideas on how to reach their children and talk to them about these issues. So in brief, without too many spoilers, I guess the upshot of it is that parents really need to sit down with their children even before they're using digital devices and start having conversations about the values of the family with respect to interpersonal actions and then how these devices will be used. And I think the key part of that, and I've said this to many parent groups, is that this can't be a one-way conversation. Obviously, when you've got little kids, they don't know a lot yet. But certainly as the kids are getting older, part of the raising process, the citizenship process, is to give them a chance to influence the family policy and also express their concerns. And one of the things we see in the research, Tanya, is that many, many children resent devices because they suck up their parents' attention. And so they're having a hard time breaking through to have meaningful conversations with their parents. So if we want digital citizens, the very first thing we need to do is be good role models for our kids in terms of how we use the devices ourselves and then have these ongoing conversations about the values that are important to the family, what the rules are for everybody's use of the device. So for instance, if we're going to have a curfew for the kids on their devices, which I strongly recommend until nearly the end of high school, it often would make sense for parents to observe that, you know, maybe a half hour or an hour later, depending on what their work demands are or what have you. But to say to the children, I agree, we're going to put our devices to bed at 9 30, 10, 10 30, whatever the appropriate time is. And you can pick them up at breakfast the next morning. And a good chunk of the cyber traps for the young kids run into would disappear with that because they're not up at 11 30, 1, 2 in the morning using their devices. So that's the start. And I think if you can really catch the kids as early as possible, keeping in mind, by the way, that the average first use of a device by a child is around 10 months these days. So, you know, whether they're flipping through an iPad or they're actually holding up mom and dad's phone, it's super young. And you run into the situation where the kids are used to using these devices without necessarily having had a conversation about what the implications are of these devices. And so that's one of the disconnects we need to fix. Hopefully, if parents are laying the groundwork, then the schools can build on that going through kindergarten, up through elementary school, and then into the really challenging years of middle school. And then hopefully by then, if this has been done well, kids in high school are really on the verge of becoming full-blown citizens anyway. And they'll have a much better understanding of what not just their rights are with respect to digital devices, but their responsibilities as well. Yeah, as a parent of a middle schooler, that's one that we're having a lot of conversation around. And we have a no device at the dinner table rule. Nobody's allowed their yep. phones or devices at dinner. Same here. Yeah. And then kids aren't allowed with phones or devices in their bedroom at night. You know, when they go to bed at 8, 830, that's it. Their devices are done. Yep. Perfect. 
It's a little harder for the parents because that's time when we get back on and finish up any work from the day. And like we don't have a TV in our house. So if we're going to watch a show together, like that's our, our streaming time and our devices there. So that gets a little trickier, but it's not easy, but it sounds like you've got a good balanced approach. Um, I went through this myself four times with four boys and I was aided by the fact that they weren't born until the mid to late nineties. So we didn't really have the handheld device issue, except mm-hmm. maybe for the fourth one, I think, because he was mm-hmm. born in 98. And that makes it much easier. But they were still using the computer quite a bit. But we had it in a central location. You could walk by at any time. I actually did put basically, I would call a monitoring software, which would simply record where they went. And I told them that every week or so, I would take a look at that. And if there was anything I thought we should chat about, we would do that. And I think with the exception of one or two instances, there was nothing to talk about. Now, that's not to say that they weren't using friends' computers to do things. <laughs> you, know, you know how that goes. But at least at least they were aware that I cared about this issue. And they had a certain amount of agency in terms of what they did, which I felt was good. Let's talk about your trip to Ghana. Oh, yes. You were recently on a Fulbright trip to Ghana. And I'd love to hear about what you were working on there and what that experience was like. Well, that sounds great. Um, it was an amazing experience. People can get a little bit of an introduction to it if they look at the last three or four issues of the Cybertraps newsletter. It's at newsletter.cybertraps.com. And so I detailed some of the things that I did and put some photos in. Real quickly, the Fulbright program is primarily designed for academics. But they have a subsidiary program called the Fulbright Specialist roster, and anybody can apply to that. And if you've got expertise that fits one of the various categories that they have, you can be certified as an expert. So I'm certified in law and computer technology. And when you get certified, you've got a, think, a four-year window on the roster. And there are requests for experts that come in from around the world. But the more common situation is that you have someone overseas that you've worked with that you'd like to visit and do more intensive work with. And that's what happened to me. During the pandemic, I was actually contacted on Twitter by an organization called Child Online Africa because they were following my Cybertraps feed. And I wound up doing a couple of webinars for them. And then when I got back on the roster, this is my second go around, I specifically asked them to request to have me come to Ghana. And we were able to put all of the pieces of paper together to make that work. So I went over and Child Online in Africa hosted me. And we did a bunch of presentations for schools and different organizations on cybersecurity and cyber safety. The highlight really in some ways was the trips outside of Accra to uh, UNESCO programs that are boosting STEM education for girls, which, you know, there's a big gender gap in terms of schooling and access to the technology and so forth. So it was really great to see that work being done to try to level the playing field. It was amazing. I mean, the food is incredible, just the different things that you <laughs> have available to you. It's a country that's grappling with a lot of economic issues, and you can really see that in terms of infrastructure and construction and so forth. It makes you appreciate the Environmental Protection Agency here in the United States because there's none of that in Ghana, or at least not very much. So there were aspects of it that were a little bit challenging, but 
in terms of working with the people and the programs that were over there, it was fantastic. It really was. As a matter of fact, just last Sunday, I did a two-hour Zoom call with parents actually from all over the continent asking questions, many of the same topics that we're discussing today. So I'm hoping that the relationship that I strengthened when I went on the Fulbright Specialist thing will continue down the road. But I would certainly encourage any of your listeners to look into it. The programs can go for a maximum of 42 days. So anywhere between 14 to 42 days. And uh, it's absolutely a wonderful opportunity and does good things. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. And hearing you talk about the infrastructure, I remember reading something recently that most of the world now does actually have internet coverage, but a lot of the world doesn't have devices to access the internet coverage that is now being offered. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, is that kind of something that you ran into or do you see a lag in cyber citizenship or digital citizenship from where we are? Because I feel like most of us in the U.S. have had internet for quite some time and are familiar with a lot of the traps and things that can happen. And in countries where they're still coming online or they don't have devices or it's all new. Yeah. I feel like that's probably a different conversation. It is a very different conversation. <laughs> absolutely. A couple of different observations, though, with respect to that. First, device usage in Ghana, particularly among kids, which was my main focus, is probably 25% of what it is in the United States. And we're not even talking smartphones. We're just talking mobile cell phones. Mm-hmm the nine-digit keyboard. That being said, even with those devices, you've got some of the same cyber traps that I talk about. Online gambling is a huge problem across the country. Hmm. Basically, you know, these little games of chance that kids are playing using these, for lack of a better term, dumb phones, the programmers are able to figure out a way to make it compelling in, in one way or another. In Accra, which is the capital of Ghana, the experience was a little bit different because We went to a couple of private schools. They've got a very decentralized education system, and there's a lot of private schools that try to fill the gaps. And I remember vividly going into one classroom, and these kids were all over the internet issues that we were talking. They actually couldn't bring devices to school because the school would not allow them to do that, but they used them at home. And we had a conversation that would not have been out of place in any school in the United States. In terms of the implications of the internet, they were super concerned about bullying. They were concerned about their data privacy. They had a very sophisticated approach to how tech companies should be better protecting them because they don't think that they're adequately protected. I asked about their parental device usage and every hand in the classroom shot up like, oh, I've got thoughts about that. And it was exactly the same stuff. Like dad comes home and he's immediately on his phone and I can't interact with him. We don't do as much at night as a family. All of the same things that people are concerned about here. So I think the thing to take away from all of this is that there's a big push to get kids in more remote areas access to the internet in a meaningful way. And their leap frogging a lot of the development we had in the United States because they're bypassing copper lines. So they're going straight up into satellites and back down again, or, you know, I guess Starlink is going to play a role in all of this as well, but they're going to be, as they roll out this technology, they're going to be in the deep end of the pool very quickly. And that's part of what Child Online Africa is trying to deal with. 
is to help the parents and the kids be prepared for what they will find online. And, you know, they can access all of the same stuff in Ghana that we can access here in Brooklyn. So in that way, it's phenomenal, but it carries with it all of the same risks. And responsibilities. Absolutely. Can you share a story that you remember from your elementary school years? I run an elementary school, and so I love to hear about what guests remember back from that time in their life. First grade, duck and cover under a school desk. I remember that vividly. So that would have been 1969. For nuclear war, Cold War. Yep. And now, of course, you laugh about it in terms of the utter futility of uh, the objective. Other things that I remember, Tanya, um, I remember phenomenal reading program that my fifth grade teacher started because I had three or four classmates and myself who just grew up doing a ton of reading. And so we really read ourselves out of the fourth grade resources. And this really cool fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Mooney, I think, basically organized a recess time or break time reading group and just help fuel that love of reading that I have, which was really amazing stuff. I vividly remember the walk from my house to Jefferson Elementary, <laughs> which is where I went to the school. But I don't remember a huge amount. I do remember, so first grade was Mrs. Habib, and we did the duck and cover, but they were still doing corporal punishment back then. And I remember Mrs. Habib actually spanking one student at the front of the classroom. That obviously made an impression on me. That may have been the last time that happened in the public school that I was in, but I couldn't say for certain. Yeah. So those are the ones that immediately leap to mind. I'd have to dig a little harder. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Well, thank you. How can people get in touch with you? Myriad ways. I am not a digital recluse by any stretch of imagination. Basically, the uh, simplest thing to do is to go to either newsletter.cybertraps.com or cybertraps.com or fredericlane.com. And all of those have a contact form, which will come directly to me. I'm easy to look up on LinkedIn. So that's another way to uh, reach out to me. And uh, I certainly hope people will. I'm happy to answer any questions or tell them more about what I do. Excellent. And we'll have all of those links in the show notes for listeners as well to make it easy to reach out and find you. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today, Fred. This was great. It was a real pleasure, Tanya. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com, where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. There are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges.
Its intuitive design and integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Do you want to save time on prep work? Increase achievement for all student populations? Reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash B-E.